Hear the word of the Lord. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. If uh, you're visiting with us, welcome. If you have questions about what's going on or you need prayer or anything like that, you can fill out a Connect card in the seat back in front of you and drop it at the welcome table on the way out. If you want to know some events coming up, you can check the back of your bulletin. There's a special table going out that it's pretty cool what's going on there, so you can check that out. Uh, one announcement that I want to spend a little bit of time on that's both nerdy and exciting is the Sojourn app is now ready. Um, we have a picture. We got a little uh, thing. Oh, I didn't turn my... It's hard to use this when it's not on. Yeah, so the Sojourn app is ready. And maybe you're like, apps, that's so 2009. Who cares? Uh, well, one thing... So real quick, uh, if, if you don't want to listen to the sermon and just play on the app, go to your app store right now and search Sojourn Collective. So we're a, a local church that's part of a family of local churches across Louisville, and we call that collective. For the family, we call it the Sojourn Collective. So search Sojourn Collective, and you'll be able to get the app. When you, saw, when you open it the first time, make sure you hit New Albany, because there's different churches in the area. And what's cool when you get there is there's normal stuff, like weekly events that are coming up. You can have that right there in your app. You can get sermon audio right there from the app. Uh, but there's a couple of things that I'm, I'm really excited about. There's a ton going on in there. Uh, there's a video on Facebook right now. When you go home, you can see some of the cool stuff going on. And we'll send an email out with the newsletter on Monday with a link to that video of how to use the app and all that kind of stuff. But uh, on the bottom of the app, there's a tab that says media. And one of the things we, we wanted to do is make sure it wasn't just an app that you open up and you're like, oh, cool, service times. Like you read it once and then you're done. We wanted things to be able to keep bringing you back to find some value in it. And th there's two that, it, this is all Bobby's idea that I'm really excited about. Uh, the first is if you've got kids or you've spent time at Sojourn Kids, uh, a few years ago, we developed this thing we call it the North Star Catechism. And it's 52 weeks of simple questions for parents to ask their kids as we instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And we, we want to teach our kids true things about God. And we put them in a deck of playing cards. We thought that would be fun. And if you have a three-year-old, for instance, and you hand them a deck of playing cards, you know that playing cards disappear, or it gets messy. And so the whole North Star, and we charged you for that. Uh, the North Star Catechism is all free in the app right now. And so you, it'll be you have until we take it out. So as, as long as you want, and that's right there, one question you can talk through with your kids. Uh, there's also a devotional that updates every week based on the revised common lectionary. So this is stuff that like Christians are reading all over the world. And it's got uh, devotional questions in it. You can write notes in there, write from the app. You can share it with your friend or your community group. It'll be a reading in the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament, and that changes every day. Uh, so we're really excited about the app. And I, would, and I don't know how you feel about our church, but there's a, a ministries page. The member services one, you can see that right there. Uh, that's like if you, know, if you have a baby, but you're not plugged in yet, and you haven't experienced the meal train blessing, right? Anybody here I got that meal train blessing? A meal train? Yeah. Something happens in life, and you don't want to cook. And so everybody in the church cooks for you, and you get like 
six months worth of food or something crazy, way more than you'll eat. But it's hard when you're the new person, right? What do I do? You can go there, request a pastor visit you at the hospital, someone to pray for you, things like how to get into a meal train, those kinds of things. Uh, But if you go to ministries, you'll see all of the things that you guys are doing in our neighborhoods, in education and and jobs and food. and, And it's amazing everything that's going on here. So that's worth just spending some time with and being encouraged about everything that's happening in and through this church. So there's an app for that. You know, I'm excited about it. Download it. I was joking about downloading it during the sermon. It's the word of God, right? Pay attention. Uh, But if you really want to zone out, you can. Uh, So you could also open it right now and look at your bulletin instead of taking notes there. You can take notes right in the app. It's cool. I'm excited. Whatever. We're in a series on the five identities. This is who we are as a church, these new identities that God gives us and how, how they serve as invitations for our own transformation, our, our own becoming. Last week, we started by talking about what does it mean that we're worshipers, that God makes us um, worshipers, and how, how does that appeal to our need as humans to feel safe in the world? And this morning, we're going to talk about the next one, disciples. Uh, my, my hope is as we talk about it, it'll expand our understanding of what a relationship is, what happens in a relationship, and more specifically, what happens in our relationship with God. If you've been around Sojourn for a while, uh, years ago we called this identity learners. And I think that the idea of learners has kind of won the day, even though we switched the language to disciples. Disciples is a more biblical word. It's a more robust word. But learner seems to be what we think about when we think about being a disciple. A learner is someone who's, who reads thick books and who goes to Bible study and fills their minds with information. So a lot of us around here, especially if you've got some seminary in your background, uh, we think that being a disciple of Jesus means learning information. Um, what's interesting about this, if uh, think about the capital D disciples for a second. So that's the 12, right? The guys that walked with Jesus, that slept with Jesus, uh, the big disciples, right? Uh, you realize in the Gospels, Jesus told them almost everything about what was going to happen. Like he, he told them how this story was going to play out, what his mission was going to be, what was going to happen. So based on the information, it shouldn't have surprised them when he was executed, right? Like this was, he didn't hide this from them. But how did they respond when Jesus was executed? Like they panicked, they betrayed, they hid, they became afraid, It, it wasn't knowing that this would happen that changed them. Similarly, Jesus told them that he was going to rise from the dead. But it wasn't knowing that he was going to rise from the dead that, that calmed their fears. Or, or last week, how, how we saw how they moved from hiding in a house together to hollering out in the streets. You see, even after, even after they met the resurrected Jesus, it said they worshipped him, but some still had their doubts right? They knew he resurrected. And yet, it didn't change them. What did change them? What what happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2? It was experiencing the presence of the resurrected Jesus inside of them. It was the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them the Holy Spirit would come and he would lead them, but that didn't change them. It wasn't until they actually experienced the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that their shame was replaced with courage, that their fear was replaced with boldness. For the disciples, from that point on, discipleship meant spending time with Jesus 
to become like Jesus. It, it wasn't about learning information about Jesus or just arbitrarily studying Jesus to feel smarter. I think a lot of us see discipleship like going to study hall or maybe going to math class where you sit there and you memorize information. Sojourn has been the kind of church, I've been here for like a decade, so I feel like I can talk about us sometimes bluntly. Uh, we're the kind of church where it's like, I don't know, pick something that you're interested in. Like you're suddenly really interested in horseback riding and kind of the typical, I would say at least guy at Sojourn would be like, I'm into horseback riding now. I'm gonna order like six books on horseback riding. And I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to read about horseback riding. What's the best way to learn how to horseback ride? Anybody? Get on a horse, right? Like there's only so far you can take it by reading about horseback riding. Uh, one of the real mysteries of the Christian faith, and I think of humans in general, is that the, the deepest learnings almost always happen by the doing. Uh, like think about the difference between math class and shop class. You don't, you don't sit back in shop class and just listen to the carpenter up there talking about how to cut wood and how to adjust a miter saw. You become a carpenter by getting covered in sawdust, right? You, you learn the rhythms of doing this and actually doing it. Discipleship is about spending time with someone to become like them, to develop character like theirs, to be able to do whatever it is that they do. So this morning... I want us to talk about kind of the basic rhythms of discipleship. What is a discipleship uh, or what is a disciple and what does discipleship look like? These kinds of things. But the, the more difficult question, because there's probably not going to be any surprises this morning. I'm probably not going to say this is something you should do. And you're like, I never knew. So spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you to read the Bible here in a few minutes. And I'm guessing if you've ever been to church before, you have some sense that you should read the Bible. Even people who aren't Christians, you know, the Bible's the best-selling book of all time. So even if you like, just want to be interesting at a dinner party, you should read the Bible because it's been read by more people than anybody in history. Like That's not a new bit of information. Uh, what I think is uh, harder for us to understand is the real, the real need we have underneath that. Why is God inviting us into this lifestyle? What does being a disciple provide for us? So in this, in this one verse, we have the, the basic rhythms of the Christian life. And again, no, no surprises here. It, it, it begins with a posture of soul. What the heck does that mean? You should just go back and listen last week. Almost the whole thing was about what does it look like? What is a posture of soul for, for you and your, your innermost being to be pointed to something? And so this is what we read about these first Christians. All the believers devoted themselves. Now let's pause. So the word, the posture part here is this word devoted. It's a big word, means a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the, the idea is kind of steadfast commitment. It means to persist in something. Uh, to cling to something, um, to spend time with, to continue in, to keep company, to be firm. It's, like all, it's this big word. It, it reminds me of uh, the idea of hold fast, like the sailing term. You know, so you'll hear sailors shout, hold fast when a wave is coming or a storm's coming, because you've got to cling to the rope. It's, it's a lifelong, ongoing clinging to something. And in this case, in the context of Christian discipleship, it's a clinging to Jesus. So disciples see themselves as lifelong students of Jesus, right? This is an ongoing rhythm of life. It's not, not a flash in the pan, one moment thing. And as far as the Bible's concerned, there, there is no category for, on the one hand, a convert to Jesus, and on the other hand, a disciple of Jesus. So for instance, um, 
I feel like everybody in New Albany got baptized at summer camp when they were like 11, right? You heard something, you said the prayer, you did the thing. And I'll talk to people that are like, you know, I was baptized when I was 10. I mean, I've been a Christian my whole life. I was baptized when I was 10, but like, I just have, I've just never read the Bible. I've never followed. Like, so you had this moment early on where you made some commitment to Jesus and did some spiritual ritual, but then you never did anything with Jesus after that. There was no participating in the life of Christ, no following Christ. And I would just say there is no category for that and still calling yourself a Christian. There is no, in the Bible, separation between coming to Jesus but not following Jesus and still thinking that you're in the family of God. And so what I see in our area is, one of my, my friends puts it this way. He, he says there's many Christians that are just vampire Christians. What's a vampire Christian? That's a Christian who only wants the blood of Jesus, right? And so you have, maybe you got some sin problem, right? You did you did dumb. You, y'all been doing dumb for as long as you've been alive, right? And you got all these things. And so you come to Jesus saying, I need the blood of Jesus. And you know you're probably going to do something else dumb in a few days, but you're, you're cool with that because you know that you can come back to that blood. You can get another dose of the blood and, and remind yourself that you're forgiven again. And so we live in this cycle that, you know, Paul in Romans would say, should we keep sinning so that we can experience more grace? Like how backwards is that? That's vampire Christianity, where you come to Jesus for his blood, but not his lordship. There's a difference there. If you come to Jesus just for his blood, then you get to say things like, I'm forgiven, and everything I do is fine, and it's all wonderful, and it's all great. But if you come to Jesus and call him Lord, then he gets to tinker in your life. When there's disagreements, right? between you and Jesus, if you're going to call Jesus Lord and follow him, that means Jesus gets to win the argument. Disciples of Jesus don't just find Jesus useful. If you find Jesus useful, just look at your prayer life to know, like, how often are you asking Jesus to fix these problems? Jesus, I need a better marriage. Jesus, I need a better house. Jesus, I need more money, right? You want the things that Jesus can provide for you. Biblical discipleship sees Jesus as worthy of following. It sees him as Lord, and so their lives are devoted to him, not to getting stuff from him, but to coming to him. And, and I wish it was, I don't know, a lot of us, I think, see this as some like supernatural, crazy, mystic thing, but watch how ordinary what they do is. This is what their devotion looked like. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So this is the part where it's like, what do disciples do? Well, at the apostles' teaching that comes to us through the scriptures today, they read the Bible. To fellowship, they spent time together. To sharing in meals, they ate. And it says, including the Lord's Supper, right? So not only the Lord's Supper, maybe we should bring back the old church potluck. I don't know how you do a potluck with this many people at a church, but maybe we should do it because Christians are eating people. And, and they, they prayed together right? Oh, I see how that sounded funny. I was like, why did that sound? Why is everybody laughing at that? We are people who eat. Yeah, you guys are listening. Sometimes I wonder. Yeah. And so look at this for a second with this. Look at how, look at how their discipleship involves all of their humanity, okay? So the apostles' teaching, they feed their minds on the Word of God, right? So humans are minds, right? We have brains and we're, we're thinking creatures. That's hugely important. If you've never read a book that was hard, 
you should read a book that's hard to read, right? Like they, they cultivate their minds and their, their intellect rooted in the word of God in the scriptures. Absolutely. Uh, but that's not all they did. And if, all, if the only part of your body you ever feed is your mind, you will be a distorted Christian. And you probably won't have many friends, right? Like if you've been to seminary, you for sure know this. The guy that can run circles around you in Bible study or the girl that shows up to the prayer meeting and she just out-bibles you on everything, but she's mean or she's just hard to be around and it's, she's abrasive and it's, you know what I mean? Like the, the really smart Christian who doesn't know the greatest commandments to love God and, and love each other, you, right? You guys know those people who, are, who know a lot, but they're just, they just bear very little evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. So you can't just feed your mind. They, they fed their minds as lifelong students of the apostles' teaching, devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they fed their bodies too. There's something about them being together, physically showing up with one another. Uh, at, on the How We Grow wall, you hear me talk about this a couple of times in the sermon, we have these little things called field guides, which are hoping to be helpful practical tips for just kind of like basic, the basic core rhythms of Christian living. And we've got one coming out in the fall called Friendship how to be a friend. And so we've been reading a lot about friendship and what does the Bible say about friendship and how do friends function in the Bible? And almost, I want to say always, but I'm, one of you will find the thing and then I'm a liar. And so I'll say almost always when you see friendship talked about in the scriptures or displayed, you know, I think Jonathan and David, like when you see what friends do together, almost always you see them eating together. It was a sacred time of being with one another, sharing in meals with one another. And this included, you know, one of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, but it was also just normal, regular meals that they were doing together. So their bodies are showing up. They're, they're physically there, preparing food. They fed their bodies. Their bodies were involved in their discipleship. So they fed their minds. They fed their bodies. They fed their souls. Fellowship and prayer. F fellowship is this idea of sharing burdens with one another. It's, it's a participatory relationship. My life is easier because of your presence in it, and, and your life is easier because of my presence in yours. There's a, there's a burden sharing that's happening there. And, and then they prayed together. So they, they have fellowship with one another, relationship with one another, and that fuels them into relationship with God. So look at what's happening here. They're studying the Bible together. They're eating Together, uh, they're fellowshipping, they're praying together. This notion of, y'all know the quiet time, right? Yeah, anybody? You, is that a parachurch thing? Or is that like, what? The, the quiet time is the 30 minutes, at least on paper, four or five times a week, that you go somewhere quiet, because it's quiet time, and you go through your Bible reading plan, and then you journal, and then you ask God for all the things you need him to do for you that week. And that's like what we do as Christians, right? Like, can, you know that thing, right? The quiet time. And most, so most of our rhythms of how we go about being a disciple happen in isolation. Like we, we put ourselves in solitary confinement to learn these rhythms of discipleship. I'm all for getting away and being alone. Like you see Jesus doing that. But these rhythms, Bible study, fellowship, prayer, it's never happening alone. You, you see, I mean, for about 1,500 years, 1,700 years, really until the Protestant Reformation, the idea of like praying by yourself or learning how to pray as the solitary thing was craziness. How do you pray? You go to church and you say the prayers every week with each other. So the idea is God is reshaping a new humanity. He's creating a new community built with new 
people. And these are the rhythms of what we do together. We feed our minds by devoting ourselves to the word. We feed our bodies through sacred meals of physical faith. We feed our souls through fellowship and prayer. And you have to have all of them or we go crazy. We go out of balance. We go out of whack. Now the I don't know, maybe you're really bored right now because you know this, right? Read your Bible, pray, keep getting together. This isn't new information. Um, we talked about this a little bit in James. I think for a lot of us, this information is confession, but not possession. Uh, like where we know this is true, but it's not something that's deep in our bones. And, and so the, the rhythms of the Christian life are dominated by shoulds and oughts. Anybody have that going on? Like, you know, what are the shoulds and oughts? It's when you spend most of your day being like, I should call this person, I should read my Bible, I should go to church, I should serve in kids, I sh and you just should yourself to death all day long. For so many of us, to me, it seems like Christianity is way more a guilt trip than a pleasure cruise. Like it's this self-flagellation where we're just beating ourselves up all day long because of all of these things that we're supposed to be doing that we're not doing. And I think it's, I don't know if it's an American thing or a Western thing, but we've totally lost the purpose. What, what is going on, the, the real driving need underneath this invitation into discipleship? You look at the early church and it's hard to see the same shame-driven Christianity that we experience today, that so many of us have. You don't hear the disciples be, you never hear Paul being like, man, I really feel like I should go to Asia, but I don't want to. <laughs> right? Like beating himself up with this feeling of like, oh man, I really. The, in so many ways, you see them doing this kind of stuff before the resurrection, before Pentecost. You don't see it as much afterwards. I think in a lot of ways, the story of the early church is the story of shame being transformed. Shame is it's that, it's that voice in your head that suspects and frequently reminds you that you're not enough. And that's a little bit different than, than guilt. Guilt is the feeling that you screwed up. Amen. Right? Amen. Okay, I'm going to talk to you guys afterwards. See, that was a, that was a church joke. Sorry. Uh, yeah, guilt is that voice. You know you did something wrong and you feel bad about it. And shame is that feeling, not just that what you've done is wrong, but that who you are is wrong. And they work together. They're in partnership with one another. So I see this play out in our church all the time. So you, you should read the Bible, amen? Amen. It's good for you to read the Bible. And so it's, it's Sunday, and man, the preacher killed it, and man, the music was great, and I'm going to do it. This week, I'm going to do it. I'm going to read my Bible on Monday morning. So you get up on Monday morning and you're, you're ready to read the Bible and you get on Facebook and someone posts something, you did something and you're 20 minutes flying there on your phone, do whatever. And then you realize, oh my gosh, it's time to work. I'll read, I'll read the Bible at lunch. You go to work, you go to lunch, start talking with Janet and you miss the thing. And you're like, Tuesday morning, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read the Bible. But then you, you oversleep. You overslept your alarm because you stayed up late Monday night watching football or whatever. And you see what I'm saying? Like you have these plans of how much better you're gonna do, but you bailed and you screwed up again. And then you feel bad about it. And if you screw it up like that enough times or the, the success to failure ratio starts dipping down on success, you'll start concluding it's not just that I didn't try hard enough or that I screwed up. It's because there's something wrong with me. If, if I was really a Christian, I would have read the Bible more by now. If I was really... And so this, this unresolved guilt can begin fueling deep shame. And if you're someone here, which I'm, I'm going to say 38% of you can relate to what I'm saying right now, like this deep feeling that who you are is not enough. 
if that really starts taking root or becomes a dominant voice, it's almost impossible to get up off the couch. You know what I mean? Like, why even try? I've been trying to do a Bible reading plan for 15 years. Why even try? And then maybe you think, if this changed, if that changed, if Sojourn would come out with a Bible reading plan, if this new translation would come out, or whatever, you start looking at all of these things, if this thing changed, then it would be easier. I, I, know, I know the shame dance, I would say pretty well. We are, we are intimate friends. And so here's just a quick snapshot of how this has played out in my life. So for me, and I thank God for this, life was, was pretty easy for me until my early to mid-20s. And by easy, I mean I had great parents, like we, I had everything I needed, went to good schools, and I was born with enough talent that I could, I could do just above average by barely trying at all. So like I could get like a B, B plus, you know, good enough that people don't think anything's wrong with you, really without trying at all. And when you're a teenager, someone telling you you have potential is really encouraging. Like, you've got a lot of potential. But listen, if you're 25 or 30 and they're still telling you you have potential, it's not a compliment anymore, right? Like, it's not a compliment anymore if someone's telling you you have potential at that point. And so here's what, what happened to me. I had, a, I had a degree from college, I had a couple degrees from college, and uh, everyone's telling me how much potential I had. But deep inside, I knew that I'd coasted through all of life, right? Like, I just... I'd just been on cruise control. And I had this really deep fear of what would happen if I tried hard. I had this deep belief that if anything was ever difficult, I would screw it up because I've never had to try hard at anything. I've essentially faked my way through the first 23, 24 years of my life. Long string of events, I find myself moving to Kentucky, of all places, to go to seminary. And I can remember driving up I-65 through Alabama. You know that brutal, awful drive? where everything's flat and brown and ugly and just goes on forever. I'm on there, right? Like the pits of hell going up 65 North. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you can fake a philosophy degree, especially from a state school, right? Like a monkey could write a sentence and they'd get an A in a philosophy degree. I was like, you can fake a philosophy degree, but you cannot fake a master's degree. And I'm going to be exposed. I remember feeling so sure that as soon as I got into these seminary classes, they would find out I'm not that smart, I'm not a good writer, and, you know, I'm basically an idiot who's been faking it his whole life. Uh, I do well my first semester of seminary, and, but I was real lonely. So I go to a professor, and I was like, can I paint your house? And he's like, well, why don't you just start volunteering at, at Sojourn? And I was like, okay. And so he, he got me hooked up with this internship deal, and I can remember being so in awe of Sojourn and we were in this little old school like we, we are here back over in Louisville. And I was like, man, I, maybe I can fake these seminary professors, but I can't fake Sojourn, right? Like a, an internship at Sojourn, they will see through me and they will expose me. Things started getting tricky because I started doing really well in seminary and really well at my internship. And then Sojourn said, hey, do you want a job? And I was like, oh my gosh, you can fake an internship, but you, you, can't, fake, you can't fake a job right? So I graduate seminary. I, I did really well in seminary, and I did really well in my job. The guy who started this location, you, some of you remember, Michael, he decided he wanted to move back to Texas. So one of the pastors calls me, and he says, hey, we want you to go be the new pastor over at New Albany. What do you think? And I freaked out, and I said something spiritual, like, let me pray about it. I'll call you back. And I hung up the phone. And I remember, I could show you where in Louisville on Shelby Street I was driving when I got that phone call. And I remember, clear as day, thinking, you cannot fake being a pastor. 
I hope you see the pattern that's been going on here, right? It, here's, here's the reality. Uh, and these have been deeply painful realizations for me. None of those circumstances ended in the failure. I was so sure they would, right? Like nothing played out. I've done, I've failed. We've had failures here at this church. But by and large, it's like it's gone kind of good. You know, like it's gone pretty well and there's something cool happening here that it feels like a privilege to be a part of. And none of those fears that I had came to fruition, not in seminary, not at an internship, not at a job, not at being a pastor, and none of that dented my shame an ounce. The really paralyzing part about shame is the day you wake up and realize that your circumstances won't fix it. Shame is not a circumstantial problem. It is an illness of soul, and the human soul is not built to carry shame. It's it's one of the first results of the fall we see. We sever our relationship from God, and then shame is on the scene, covering, hiding from this place of realizing that we are not enough. You cannot be close to people while shame is rolling deep in your soul, and you will not be close to God while shame is rolling deep in your soul. And what's more, our circumstances will never heal our shame. So what's happening here in the, in the book of Acts? We're seeing how our identity as disciples is an invitation into the healing of our shame. I promise you, the only thing that can heal deep feelings of inadequacy or that, that deep belief that who you are is not enough, the only thing that heals that is an even deeper experience of being loved, of being rejoiced in, of being delighted in. And the only love that's deep enough for that is the love of God in Christ. When you taste that, not only do you see how loved you are, but how incredibly valuable you are. Do you see yourself as a son or daughter of the king of the universe? Your destiny is to reign alongside Christ among all of the wonders of creation, all of the mountains, all of the stars, all of the rivers. God looked at you and said, this is my highest creation. This is my prized possession, the only one worthy of bearing my name. It wasn't doctrine or information that changed the disciples from hunkering to hollering, from fearful to bold. It was, it was experiencing the risen Christ. It was the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. This is the, most, this is the highest and most glorious doctrine of the Christian faith. It's the doctrine of union with Christ. You realize God, as righteous judge, could have just said, okay, I declare you not guilty anymore. And that would be it. He, and you could just go about your life. Go to Ephesians chapter one, in love, because he loved you. He chose you so you could not be in jail anymore. That's not what Paul says in Ephesians. In love, he chose you to be adopted into his family, and not just that, and then conform to the image of his son. It's not just confession of that reality, though. It's the experience of it, that God has made his home in your heart, that Christ has wrapped his righteousness around you, that you and he are one. And Jesus told the disciples how this glorious reality would work out earlier in his ministry. It's one of the weirdest verses in the Bible, I think. He says, for where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. 
This used to really confuse me. Like Jesus is sitting up in a lighthouse with a big long telescope waiting for two Christians to get together. And he sees them together and then he like teleports to them and is like, finally, I can be with you guys, right? Like, what does that mean? Does he just show up? Okay, this is, this is important. Pay attention, please. Um, if, if every Christian has the presence of Christ in them, right? Doctrine of union with Christ. If you confess faith in Christ, if you're following Jesus, his presence lives inside of you. If every Christian has the presence of Christ inside of them, whose presence are you in when you sit across from another Christian? Yeah, Jesus. Think about that. Whenever you are in the presence of another Christian, you are in the presence of the risen Christ. I don't care if you're sitting down for coffee. I I don't care if you're playing a board game. I don't, you ever had that experience where you get in a room of Christians, even if they're strangers, you went and visited another church, you went to some potluck thing, some old lady came up and hugged you at some random church service, and you have that sense of belonging, all all of a sudden you you just know that you're in the presence of family because that's the presence of Christ. Whenever you're in the presence of a Christian, you are in the real presence of the risen Christ. And what do you experience in the presence of Jesus? So much. His unending love for you. His voice rejoicing over you. His delight washing over you. That's why you can have such a powerful experience around friends and other Christians, even when no words are said. Maybe you've sat beside a hospital bed holding a dying person's hand, and there's just nothing to say but it feels like a holy moment and there's something sweet there. It's the presence of Christ ministering to us. These rhythms of life as disciples of Jesus, they press us into relationship with God and relationship with each other. We experience the real presence of Christ in prayer, in the ordinances, absolutely. And we also experience the presence of Christ corporately in our fellowship with each other, our praying together. For so many of us, I think we've just grown bored and stagnant in our faith because we've never decided to follow Jesus. You, you trust him with your eternal soul. You look at him as the one to get you into heaven or because you want to see Mama and Papa again. And so you've made this prayer and you want to get to heaven. But are, are you covered in the sawdust of the master carpenter, right? Like, are you covered in the dust of Jesus's feet because you're walking so closely to him? Do you recognize his voice? Do you look to the shiny things of the world to feel like you matter? Or are you pressing in to deep communion with Jesus? Is Jesus useful for the life you've always wanted? Or do you just want Jesus? Disciples of Jesus find their true worth as image bearers of God by spending time with Jesus. And that almost always will mean spending time with other Christians. We spend time with him. We become like him. We feel our own worth, our value, and we experience the healing of our shame. So I, I want to end on just a couple of practical notes, too. When you, can, when you want Jesus, okay, and this is like a shot across the bow, fair warning to anyone considering Christianity. When, when you want Jesus and not just what he'll give you, you'll find yourself in painful situations. Because when Jesus is Lord, again, he gets say over everything in your life. To be devoted to him means to acknowledge you aren't always right. Can we agree on that? Right? Like, are you awake enough? 
like in your soul and how you see yourself to know that you're not so good at your life, that you do stuff that you wish you hadn't, you make decisions that took you down crazy places. So again, when Jesus and you are in conflict with each other, a disciple says Jesus wins. You know, there's over a thousand commands in the New Testament, something like that, around a thousand. I thought this was a gospel of grace. Why would he give us so many commands? I, I don't know. I wish I could shout this. Do you realize that God is interested in more than saving you? Is that even a category for you? That God is interested in more than your eternal salvation? That he wants you in his family? In, in Christ, God is reclaiming your humanity. He's making all things new again. He's teaching you how to be a human being. The commands aren't about you getting saved or staying out of jail. It's about you learning how to be a human. Disciples don't see the commands of God as requirements for salvation. They see the commands of God as invitations into life. Jesus says to his disciples, the one who loves me is the one who what? What's he say to them? The one who loves me is the one who what? So, yeah, keeps my commandments. The one who loves me is the one who obeys me. So what will that mean? So often the best way to experience the love and presence of Christ is to obey him. And that must happen in the painful places of your life because those, that's the battleground for the lordship of Christ in your life. It's not the easy stuff that comes naturally to you because you're just a naturally friendly person or something like that. Like, look at your finances. That's a tough one, Right? He says we should be a people of generosity. Like, this was a little bit controversial. This isn't in my notes. We're off the rails and we're, I don't know, running along two services in a row. So whatever. Please put on your grace ears and listen to this. Did anybody hear about the Revoice Conference a couple weeks ago? Anybody? Christian blogosphere? Yeah, the seminary people heard about it. If you're like, what's the Revoice Conference? There was this conference that was LGBTQ, uh, self-identifying gay Christians having a conference together to talk about how to live as gay Christians. And most of like the conservative evangelical world lost their minds over it, like blowing these people up, like, how could you do this? This is such a threat. These are all these awful things. And if you go and read what these people are saying or what they are affirming, what, they, what this conference was about, they're saying, we are people who are attracted to people of the same sex. And we believe the Bible's teaching on sexuality, that sexual intimacy, that marriage is for heterosexual monogamous relationships. And we want to figure out how to live a life of celibacy, trusting, following God's design for us. Can you imagine feeling something so core to your identity as your sexuality and having such faith that you can see it being in conflict with God's design, that you would lay that down for the sake of knowing Jesus. That is what discipleship looks like. It doesn't matter what it is in me. It doesn't matter what belief it is. It doesn't matter what possession it is. It doesn't matter what orientation it is. Everything I have, I give to Christ because he's Lord. And we can debate about language. We can debate about topics at the conference, but we should be able to look at that and say, what faith? Most of us struggle to give like two or 3% of our money, let alone laying down our very sexuality, a lifetime, children, family, all of this, laying that down because we want Jesus so badly. 
The painful places in our life are where the lordship of Christ is made manifest. And it's in our obeying of him that so often we experience him. Because you'll see men like Wesley Hill saying there's something better than marriage and physical intimacy. It's knowing Jesus. It will, listen, if you are here and you're not a Christian, I guarantee you, following Christ will be painful and costly. At some point, the God of the universe will agree with you that you are not living the way you should be living. There's a way of living that seems right to you, and in the end, it'll kill you. That's what Proverbs 14 says. But the reward is the transformation of your soul, the healing of your shame, the experiencing of communion with the God of the universe. Commit to the painful priorities and then immerse yourself in the rhythms of relationship. So listen, these are the ordinary rhythms, right? Study the Bible, gather with Christians, fellowship, regular prayer. Please reject the notion of this isolated, solitary confinement Christianity. Like, I suppose it's possible to be a Christian and do that. I just don't think it's possible to thrive and grow. These are the ordinary, regular rhythms of discipleship with Jesus. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't just check the box. Don't just do this to say, you did this. Read the Bible. Not to say you've read the Bible. Read the Bible to know Jesus. Read the Bible to experience relationship with him. Pray, not to say you prayed or to work through your prayer list. Pray to hear the voice of God. Do you know you can do that? Like, we've got field guides on all of this stuff out there. How to read the Bible to know Jesus. How to pray to hear the voice of Jesus. But <laughs> listen to me. We will always be a church that gives you content. If you're like, oh, man, that sounds kind of liberal, wishy-washy. Like, just go look at that wall. It's filled with orthodox, thick books, right? Like, you... I can give you 14,000 Bible studies for free right now on our Right Now Media app. Anything you want to know about. We've got wonderful teaching about that. Content will never be the problem at this church. It's will we be a people who press into that to know Jesus, not just to walk around saying we're better than these other churches or to say that whatever, like hide in our minds and not deal with this deep terrain in our souls. We do all of these rhythms to know Jesus and be known by him, to know each other and be known by each other. And if your problem is motivation, then I invite you to return to the great gospel that we remember every week. God has not come to crush you. He's come to redeem and transform you. And he's shown you this. We have evidence of God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of our iniquities were laid on him. It was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that he bore on his body. How much does God love you that he would endure that for you? And for you who are just so trapped in your own guilt and your own mistakes, please hear this. Jesus invites you home, not based on your merit, but based on your need. And if you're willing to admit your own neediness and be honest with God, that's all you need to come back home. It's not your merits. It's simply your need. So look to the cross like he's had enough for you to trust God in the painful places that he would do this for you. Look at the resurrection. Is that hope enough for you? Even in the dark places, even in the hard places to hold on to the life of faith. We anchor our souls. We anchor our faith in the presence of Christ by remembering what he's done for us. On the night that he was betrayed, when he, he took up a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this, remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine. He 
said, this is my bloodshed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you. Like I, there is a way to be free from your shame. There is a way to be free from your guilt. And I promise you, no amount of circumstance or success will deal with it. Only experiencing the love of God manifested in Christ, given to you through Christ, you can be healed. If you're a Christian, remember your great worth. Remember God's great love for you. And we'll pray that God would arouse in us a greater affection for Christ that we might desire him more than what he can simply give to us. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left or right. You can use whichever you'd like. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.